it's hard to say that it's better than the original, but I think it, it's, it's a great companion piece to it because it sort of enriches everything that's already there. It's just this great mood piece mm-hmm. that doesn't really need, I, I don't think that it needs to dig incredibly deep into the characters to work. That's not what he was going for, and it didn't need that. It was nicely coincidental. This was just on TV, what, two nights ago? Yeah. And we, of course, clicked it and put the remote down, and we were watching. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the best horror films made by directors that aren't really known to be horror directors? That, to me, sounds like a good podcast topic. What do you think? I like it. That's why we stole it directly from Twitter. <laughs> a conversation that the other Mad Wolf Pack was having. And I said, hey, 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 let's do that. Let's do it. And we're doing it now with a couple great special guests. Welcome. This is the Fright Club Podcast. And she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we are from MadWolf.com. Welcome, and We're going to talk about that. And some of the movies might jump to mind very quickly, but some may not. But we'll get into those. But first, we want to say thank you to a rowdy crowd. I mean... <laughs> Rowdy, they were ready to party this past Friday, a couple of Fridays ago now. I've lost track of time. Uh, since we've moved Fright Club Live to Fridays at Gateway Film Center, that has turned out to be a good choice, a wise move, because we had a great crowd as we watched In Fabric, which was part of the Gateway's A24 retrospective they have going on right now. And it was a great choice because so many people had not seen the film. It's true, and I was a little bit surprised by that because it had a pretty good run at Gateway when it first came out, but it's such an insane film and so fun to watch with people. Yeah. It's so fun to watch with people. And I I feel like the crowd really enjoyed it. They really did. It was one of the most interactive, I think. There were really lots of uh, lots of audience participation yes. as the movie was unfolding. And Very that's spontaneously. Fun. Yeah, and that's great. <laughs> and it was great for us to watch it again because I really appreciated it more with the crowd. So, yeah. so that was fun. And we're going to continue that uh, 824 retrospective next time out. We're going to be back for the September Fright Club Live on September 9th, and we are going to show The Black Coat's Daughter, another great one from A24. It is a great one, and it's such a, a magnificent film to watch on a big screen. It's 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 such a great example of visual storytelling. There's yeah. so much happening on the screen beyond what would be sort of in the script. Like, if you just are watching the background, it tells a yeah. whole second story. I love that movie. Yeah, and... By the way, can I get a judge's ruling here? I go back and forth between saying A24 and A24. What's the right one to do? I think it's commonly A24, but I always say A24, and that's probably <laughs> why that gets stuck in your All head. Right. And I don't know why I do, but All I always right. say A24. So but that's probably one. why you know it's what in your we're head. talking about. But we're going to be back on September 9th, 8 o'clock for the mixer. We used to call it happy hour now, but now, you know, that's too lowbrow. That's now right. It's now a it's mixer. a mixer. <laughs> it's a, not a wine mixer, really. But uh, it's you a can have wine. We're You're just sure not going can. to now. Why We're going to drink cheap beer. And then 9 p.m. is when we start the podcast and 930 for the movie. So that's great. So uh, thanks for last time. Looking forward to next time. Oh, and, and did you mention the topic for the Black Coat's Daughter? Satanism and screen. I've been waiting. I love Satanism in movies. I love it. That's a it. big topic. It is a big topic. So we're going to really winnow, yeah. but um, I'm excited to cover it. Because, okay. you know, I love me a black mask. Yes, exactly. So that's going to be good. That's September, and we've already got October Fright Club Live booked, and that's worth a mention because this is something a little bit different. We have had, over the years, we have had premieres. We have. For Fright Club Live, not that often, but we got another one coming up in October. That's right. And so, and this is a little bit, you know, I know we just made the big leap to Fridays and we're moving. We're going to do it on a different, the first Friday of October, specifically so that we can have the premiere of Piggy. New Spanish horror film. Oh, my Apparently God. Apparently, it's brutal. Brutal, and I cannot, cannot, cannot wait to get a chance to see it with a big with a big crowd of people. It's And we're going to, our topic is going to be Mean Girls and Bullies. And uh, I just hope everybody prepares yourself. Gird your loins. Or <laughs> Gird your loins. Yeah, we haven't even seen it yet either, so we're looking forward to it. It's The film actually releases to the public the following Friday right. after our, our premiere on October 14th. So as you mentioned, that's why we're moving up and doing the first Friday of the month this time on the 7th. And that should be a good one, the premiere of Piggy. So make it if you can gateway film center columbus ohio um as we dig into mainstream directors making the leap to horror and a good leap any any rules before we introduce our special guests so the rules really are just for my own 
benefit. So I narrowed. Aren't our, they always? Well, what I'm saying is I didn't I didn't enforce the rules on our guests or oh. even share them. So <laughs> okay. so their list doesn't exactly mirror what I. But I you know I always have to put in parameters to just help mm-hmm. us narrow down what we're gonna. So okay. I was not looking at directors who started out in horror. So no Jaws. Right. I, I wasn't uh, and, I, and I wasn't or, uh, you know, friends of her Coppola, James Cameron. I wasn't looking at directors who started in horror and then branched out. Okay. And I wasn't really looking for horror filmmakers who made the leap to mainstream. Right. So not Cronenberg, not Peter Jackson, right. people who were established as horror filmmakers okay, and then fair. became mainstream. And then um, I also really wasn't looking for anybody who has made several uh, horror films. You know, I was looking really for somebody who just sort of out of the blue, here's yeah. a horror film right. and wow, you know, like what kind of an impact that can have. Okay. Um, and then there were a couple that, a handful that didn't make the list that I just want to point out because James Cameron, who did if you don't know it, made not Piranha, Piranha 2, yeah. The Spawning. They fly in that one. You should definitely watch <laughs> Piranha 2, The Spawning. I used to, we used to watch that like every other week when I lived in Tiffin. Joy and I would watch that all <laughs> the time. It's one of her favorites. And of course, Francis Ford Coppola did make Dementia 13, which is worth watching. So a couple and Dracula. That, and Dracula, right. A couple that I really tossed around. So Lars von Trier, who did The House That Jack Built and Antichrist. And yeah. because really almost all of his movies could be considered horror films. <laughs> yeah. They're certainly horrific. Right. And uh, we talk about Antichrist all the time. So I didn't put that. Another one, Michael Haneke, who did both funny games. Right. Um, which we've talked about a lot. And also, uh, I think Benny's video counts as a horror movie. And again, almost everything he makes has undertones. I mean, yeah. I, I would even say um, the White Ribbon could can potentially be considered. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. certainly horrific. So, And then um, Jim Jarmusch, our beloved <laughs> Jim Jarmusch. And I would think that really only Lovers Left Alive deserves to be on this list. It's just an absolutely magnificent horror film. Loved but he it. also, of course, he did The Dead Don't Die, which was one of our premieres. It was. So, you know, anyway, they've d- dabbled enough in it that even though they're not known for it, I kind of decided to leave them off. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, we've gone too long without introducing our guests uh, here in studio. Well, actually, both of the guests have been on with us separately, right. but not together. Correct. So now it's one big one big happy party. Welcome in Brandon Thomas, who's one of our writers at MadWolf.com. And I forget the topic that you joined us last time. What did we talk about last time you were here? I think it was uh, Best Openings. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, best that's a good nice. All right, so Brandon's here in the studio, and on the phone, if you listen to our, our other podcast, our weekly podcast, The Screening Room, you know him as The Schlocketeer, bringing us up to date on all the studio news every week. We welcome in, uh, on the phone, Daniel Baldwin. Hey, thanks for having me again. Or, or should we call you the man who was just retweeted by Jamie Foxx? I think maybe that is your new name. <laughs> That was weird. <laughs> and about a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, Daniel just uh, made a real nice recommendation on um, the Day Shift, the yeah. new Jamie Foxx uh, vampire movie on Netflix, and uh, you wanted said you basically said you wanted more green light, more right now, and Jamie Foxx jumped all over that tweet. Yeah, he did. <laughs> my my uh, notifications just lit up like a Christmas tree. That day. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. All right. So uh, you're both together to help us on this topic because we know you're very uh, knowledgeable on uh, on films in general and horror films, and we love to get your input. And I think you you guys are working on your own podcast together, right? We are. We have actually uh, recorded two episodes. We're just waiting on some uh, opening titles to come in for us, and you know I'm going to be nudging our person a little bit more. So hopefully we can uh, we can actually do some more recording sooner rather than later on that. Do we have a title of this podcast? We do. It's called Exploitation on the Double, and it focuses on uh, double feature. Podcast like two movies that we would love to see paired together as a double feature. Nice, nice. All right, yeah. so we'll be looking forward to that. Let us know when it's live, and uh, and we'll let everybody know. Okay, so welcome in. So we've got our five, and mm-hmm. we'll just count those down, and then go each, as we count down. We'll just let uh, Brandon and Daniel chime in on on their numbers, right? And again, you know, just in case you missed the opening, we stole this topic from a conversation that Brandon and Daniel were having on Twitter, and we're not too proud to say so. No, I'm no, no, I'm admitting it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Darn right. Okay, so let's uh, jump in. Our number five on mainstream directors making great horror. This is from 1979. Count Dracula moves from Transylvania to Wismar, spreading the Black Plague across the land. Only a woman pure of heart can bring an end to his reign of horror. This is Warner Herzog, Nosferatu, the vampire. The flucht is vampires, Nosferatu.
of the things I think is funny about this movie is that so Herzog wrote the screenplay and Bram Stoker gets writing credit and F.W. Murnau is nowhere to be mentioned, mm-hmm. even though it's really a remake of Nosferatu. Uh, it, right down to the look of the vampire, which is one of the things that makes it so spectacular. Because, as you know, George, my favorite vampire is oh, the yeah. Max Shrek version of Nosferatu. Sure. Um, and Werner Herzog is such a weirdo. He is. Like, in anything he makes, in any appearance he makes, I think, and Daniel and Brandon, I think we both agree, the best short from last year's Nightmares Film Festival yes. was My Dinner with Werner because it was so hilarious so and it was, funny yeah and it was klaus kinski of course in this film he and he's playing the vampire and uh isabel ajani is playing lucy not mina and that's one of the things i think is interesting about this too you know as people have remade dracula over the years they just kind of mix and match characters they decide who's oh, is it going to be like in this case it's not mina it's lucy although in the book it's mina and uh, anyway it's an interesting mishmash of the Bram Stoker story and the Nosferatu tale, which is quite different. And the Nosferatu tale does sort of suggest, I think, pestilence, whereas Herzog went on and made it the Black Plague. Like, Mm -hmm. that is what the sort of metaphor was, as opposed to fear of the foreigner, which is what the book's metaphor is. So it's an interesting idea, and also the fact that, I hope this isn't a spoiler, it is a movie that came out like 45 years ago. (laughs) Uh, Jonathan Harker is the bad guy at the end, which I love. Yeah. Um, Anyway, it's just, it's a gorgeous film. It's stunning to look at. The score is unbelievable, and I just think that it is... An exceptional horror film from a guy who didn't really make horror. Yeah, and the, there's been many legendary stories down through the years about the relationship between Klaus Kinski and, and Warner Herzog, which I'm sure was a laugh a minute. Um, <laughs> and also, this movie is is different because it sort of implies you don't know how much of, of the of what we're seeing is reality yeah. and how much is sort of like a dream world that Harker is is living in. You know, it's, it's been quite some time since I've seen this version of of Dracula, and you know. You, it's it's hard not to just stare at Kinski in the makeup yeah. because he's just got he already has those piercing eyes and in anything that you see him and it doesn't matter you're just sort of you know captivated by him so putting him in the additional makeup and the movement that he does is just it, it's eerie it's it, not Max Shrek but it's darn close mm-hmm. I absolutely love it um, obviously the acting is superb um, the script is great you know it's hard to say that it's better than the original because. You know, the original Nosferatu is just so striking a film from top to bottom. But I think it, it's it's a great companion piece to it because it sort of enriches everything that's already there. And I also love all of the location shooting. You know, not we have thousands, maybe even a million vampire movies at this point, but not too many of them actually bother to shoot in locations that actually look like it would be Romania or Transylvania. Yeah. And yeah. This is definitely one of them, and it really just adds to the um, mystique and otherworldly feel of the whole thing. Yeah, Good it point. really does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you're exactly right. It, the atmosphere in this movie is so perfect, and there are so many versions of Dracula that it's very yeah. hard to give a shit. And this one, <laughs> you know, it just sucks you in. Mm-hmm. And that's Warner Herzog. Number five on our list of mainstream directors making great horror, his 1979 Nosferatu the Vampire. All right, so Brandon, what was your number five on this? My number five is Near Dark by Catherine Bigelow. Nice. That's a good choice. Yeah, that's a yeah. good one. You know, Bigelow, even though it's only her second feature film, uh, I think most people, when they hear Catherine Bigelow, they think action films or, right. you know, more prestige, you know, prestige dramas like Zero Dark Thirty or The Hurt Locker. But Near Dark is a great mashup of horror and even modern day Western and... I think that, you know, it's a movie that's sort of coming back more on the in the public conscious because it was on Shudder, so a lot more people are getting a chance to see it, and it's got an amazing cast. I mean, she basically just took almost the entire cast from Aliens, yeah. Yeah. which had been made the year before. You know, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, uh, Jeanine, uh, is it Jeanine Collins? I can't remember her. Um, but you know, Vasquez. Just a, yeah, who plays Vas- <laughs> Vasquez, you know, the badass. But it's such a fantastic mashup of, of genres, but it's, you know, so horrific. I mean, the the vampires, these are not your sexy strutting around by candlelight vampires. These guys will rip your throat out. And there's an absolute <laughs> banger of a scene yep. in a bar yeah. involving Bill Paxton that just, you know, it's it's an all-timer scene as far as vampire uh, movies go. And and I, I just think it's, uh, I'm glad to see it finally getting its due uh, with modern audiences. Yeah, it's a great movie. Actually, it's just wh- a great movie. When I think of Catherine Bigelow, I instantly think, 
was that really her in the airport that time? <laughs> Remember, we were in the airport, and we were eating, and she, and this woman was eating by herself at a few tables away. I think it was her. It looked a lot like her, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> Did you say finger licking good? <laughs> oh. Might have gone over differently yeah. if it wasn't Catherine Bigelow, right. or even if it was her. <laughs> I think this is one that has only over the years grown in stature. I think the more time goes on, more and more people just, uh, you know, refer back to this as a real cult favorite. Yeah. And, I, you know, it didn't do very well when it came out. And I think a lot of people say that, I mean, it, it came out like the exact same time as The Lost Boys, yeah. which is essentially the same movie, but way glossier, you know, <laughs> and with hotter boys in it. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that this one got overlooked when it came mm-hmm. out, but its stature has only yep. grown. I mean, it's just a fascinating, super fun movie. Agreed. That's Brandon's number five, um, Near Dark. Oh, Daniel's got a good one. Well, I went with uh, Luca Guadagnino's remake of Suspiria. And, of course, it, it's a bit of a cheat for me because I already had both of your lists. <laughs> so I could be, I could look at it and say, well, they already picked some of the ones I was considering putting on one, so I'll just put on something different. Yeah. And that's what I did here. You know, Suspiria is one of my all-time favorite films, the original. And the concept of anyone remaking it just sounded like folly to me. Mm. You know, how do, how do you do that? How do you do that and make it impactful and its own movie? And against all odds, I think he did it. Um, it came at it from an entirely different angle. Yep. Um, the subplot involving the professor doesn't quite work for me all the way, although it does feed back into the main themes. But I love that he just centered it around the witches themselves around you know female empowerment especially in a time where that was uh being stifled yep. repeatedly and then also feeding into women who abuse power and abuse power on each other and then of course getting their just desserts in the end for you know not not being the coven that they should be i was really floored by how much i loved the film its sense of style which again compared to the Argento one, you know, how do you top that? Well, you don't try to, you do your own thing with it. Yes, exactly right. I, I came to it a little bit differently in that Suspiria, I'm not as big of a fan of the originals. A lot of people are. And I loved this one. I just thought he, he added so many layers of meaning to the story. And like you say, come about it in a totally different way, especially with the colors. You're not going to try to recreate that from the original. So it went totally the different way, all browns, all earth tones. But to me, it was the storytelling was so much richer. Tilda. Tilda. <laughs> Tilda. Oh, my God. Just, she's just a glorious God. She's so great in everything. And she's so great three times in this movie. <laughs> exactly um, right. Yeah, I love. And I, you know, and I'm a bit I am a big fan of the original. But one of the things that I thought was so great about this is that, you know, the original for all of the brilliance that it is, it is a misogynistic film. And I loved that mm-hmm. he found uh, he avoided that completely in this. And that, in fact, the only men in the movie are literally playthings. Yes. They are just puppets. Uh, and I thought that that was absolutely a fascinating approach and, and uh, you know, a, a very welcome from a male filmmaker. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I love the fact that, you know, you talk about Tilda playing three different roles. I love that one of them is basically her playing Max von Sydow. Uh-huh. <laughs> she almost <laughs> looks exactly like Max von Sydow, yeah. I, I think Daniel spot on is the only way that you can remake a movie like Suspiria is to just do something completely different. Like right. Almost, you know, devoid of color. It's it's almost depressing in the way that it uh, portrays uh, winter in Europe that you just, you know, your hands and your feet start to get cold by doing this. <laughs> but it is, it's such an elegant way to tell the movie. And it really is, it's one of the better remakes in that it does its own thing. It's yeah. not trying to say, just remember all of this from the original. No, this is its own thing. Yeah. Good choice. Yeah, fantastic choice. Yes. In fact, when we saw your list, we couldn't believe we forgot that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so good. <laughs> So those are all number fives. Moving up to our number four, this is from 1963. Hill House has stood for about 90 years and appears haunted. Its inhabitants have always met strange, tragic ends. Now Dr. John Markway has assembled a team of people who he thinks will prove whether or not the house is haunted. Robert Wise and the haunting. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. Oh, this house. You have to watch it every minute. What does it take to convince you that the dead do not always rest in peace? But some houses, like Hill House, are born bad. (laughs) 
remember, I mean, I saw this movie when I was a little kid, and I've seen it like a hundred times because I am a massive Shirley Jackson fan. Um, and I remember, like, I don't know, decades later, realizing that this was the same guy who made The Sound of Music. And I thought, And West Side what? Story. I know, and West Side Story. Yeah. So, interesting. Like, that's, this is quite a departure for him. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, it's rated G, which also always kills, because it is a terrifying movie, but it doesn't show you anything. It really... It's it's black and white. It's gorgeous, and it really um, is one of the best examples of psychological horror because mm-hmm. it's all in your head. Of course, it's all in Eleanor's head anyway. Some great sound design as oh, well. Oh my god, so great! Uh, this is you know we've talked about this a couple of times in different podcasts for like very specific reasons, like uh, like the Teddy character and things like that. But overall, and of course, it was remade. There was a TV series made uh, based on the, a novel, and of course, there was a horrifying, terrible (laughs) 1999 (laughs) version with Liam Neeson that was just garbage. But this movie is just so spectacular um, in the way that it does justice to the source material. Yeah, and it was actually, he uh, first got a hold of that source material while he was in post-production on West Side Story. Wow. So I do a real about-face there. And it is, it's it's a fantastic bit of getting through to you without being overtly scary. You mentioned the G rating, which is crazy. It is. Uh, But it's creepy. And, of course, Julie Harris is fantastic. Yeah, she is. What I really appreciate about this movie especially is because of Wise, and when you think of Robert Wise as a a film fan, you think of these grand, large movies. You know, of course, like you mentioned, West Side Story and uh, The Sound of Music, but also he directed Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is a big, you know, coming right after Star Wars. At least we got to get in Star Trek, too. So, you know, the minimalism of The Haunting is just shows like, okay, this guy was obviously capable of much, much more. It wasn't all about just like, okay, throwing everything at the screen. It's like, let's mess with the audience with with what you don't see. And then obviously with that G rating, too, is not, you know, of course, being 1963 itself, you know, there there wasn't going to be a copious amounts of gore and, mm-hmm. and blood. So, you know, really getting into people's heads. So completely different from what audiences would have expected from Robert Wise at that point. And actually many of a, a lot of the scenes were inspirations for uh, the Haunted Mansion at Disney World. Nice. Mm. <laughs> I could see that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, I absolutely love The Haunting. I love the original novel hate the 1999 <laughs> the, uh, I think we're the, all in agreement there. Yeah. Yes, very yeah. much. The, uh, the miniseries version on Netflix recently was good, but it just takes a completely different path with the mm-hmm. story and focuses more on the characters. But, God, Wise as the Haunting is just such a striking piece of horror filmmaking from top to bottom. The atmosphere, um, the minimalist special effects, you know, mm-hmm. not too many films can get away with implying horror rather than showing it as right. much as that one does. But he just really knocked it out of the park and, you know, didn't really do a whole lot of horror across his massive career. But, you know, talk about hitting a home run with this one. It's just it's a phenomenal film. Yeah, it's really one of those that stands out as a director's film. Yeah. Even though we mentioned Julie Harris and Claire Bloom. I don't yeah. know if we mentioned Claire Bloom. But it really stands out as a mark of a, of a d- director's film. His thumbprint is all over it. You know what I think, just immediately double feature that jumps to mind for me with this movie is The Innocence, which is another yeah. one that is a gorgeous, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe elegant the others. black and white. That, yeah, the uh, the others and The Innocence are yeah. almost the same movie. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. I, I, there, it's just <laughs> remarkable filmmaking. Yep. That's uh, our number four, The Haunting from 63. All right, Brandon, a little bit more recent for your number four. Well, <clears throat> yeah, my number four is uh, Misery from Rob Reiner. You know, I probably for me, this is one of the more surprising ones because, you know, you look at the films that Reiner was doing leading up to Misery. You know, you have Spinal Tap, you have The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally. I mean, these are all three distinctly different movies. And then you go into a Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. I, I can't imagine anyone seeing that coming from Rob Reiner. And then especially, too, you look at his acting background as, you know, Meathead from All in the Family. <laughs> um, that's, you know, just surprising in general in that era that he came into directing. And, you know, and I think that... Coming from that background himself, you look at a movie like Misery, which, you know, uh, Hope was just talking about how The Haunting is a director's film. I think this one's very much an actor's film. I mean, it's a it's a great showcase for James Caan and especially Kathy Bates, which I believe was her first film, her first feature film that she had been in. And is just, I mean, my God, what a statement she Oscar made. Winner. I mean, yeah, Oscar winner coming right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's such a great showcase for those two. And, and the horror... You know, the, the great story from Misery itself is in the novel, 
you know, there's the famous hobbling scene right. in the movie. In the novel, she cuts his feet off with an axe. Yeah. Which I think the sledgehammer in the movie is way more horrific. Oh, I do too. It's so yeah. visceral. So yes, visceral. Yes, it absolutely is. It, it, this was one of our first dates. It was. <laughs> this was one of our first dates. Kind of set the tone, it didn't it? It kind of did, yeah. It's, it's, and it, it is, Kathy Bates is, is perfection in this movie. She is absolutely terrifying and hilarious. And, yeah, James Caan is also great. And, you know, I think, I mean, he spends nearly the entire film acting from a bed. That's got to be tougher than you would think. But yeah. he really pulls it off. Uh, there's a, a lot of just anguish and, and also just like, you know, sort of the mental calculations that you can see trying not to come out on his face because he's trying. It's it's really, I think, underappreciated performance. Yeah, exactly. And that's a good one. Uh, Brandon's number four is Misery. All right, Daniel, you're up. <laughs> Well, first on the misery part, my favorite thing about it is the casting. I know they were going for, initially they were going for more of like a Harrison Ford, William Hurt type mm -hmm. for the lead. And while that could have worked, I think it, it just adds an extra layer to the fact that it's Sonny Corleone laying in that bed, getting <laughs> hobbled. Khan's <laughs> yeah. tough guy persona and then seeing him be constantly emasculated throughout just really drives oh, yeah. the yeah, entire yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Rest in peace. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. End of tweet. End of tweet. <laughs> yeah. I was not hip to that that he, until he passed away. I thought, oh, I didn't know he did that. Oh, so that yeah. was that was really nice where they did that with his family. Oh, yeah, uh, that yeah. was really yeah. nice. End of tweet. Uh, but there's some great, and you guys shared them, some hilarious James Conn stories came out of that that I hadn't heard. <laughs> Just some of the stuff that he would do with, uh, with uh, something about his local um, video, video store. guy, yeah. <laughs> store guy. Oh, my God. Just funny, funny stuff. Um, okay, I jumped the gun a bit, but now you're up, Daniel. Number four. Uh, my number four is The Omen, which, you know, it doesn't really get as much play these days, and I think it has everything to do with the style of the film it is. It's, it's very purposeful. You know, the whole film, it starts like a prestige, you know, 70s drama. You've got wholesome uh, Gregory Peck with his wholesome family. He just had his his first child, obviously there's some complications there, but it, it's just everything is nice and prim and proper and perfect. And then as the film goes on, poor Gregory Peck basically slowly gets sucked into a Hammer horror movie and just traumatized more and more to the point where he can believably try to stab a child to death at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not really something you picture Gregory Peck doing, but I think uh, Richard Donner, who had only done a couple of films beforehand and never really did any horror afterwards, I think he did a great job of just kind of lulling you into that as it goes along and then slowly ratcheting up the gothic atmosphere as the film goes on. I think that you have nailed the secret to this movie exactly, and it is Gregory Peck. So one of the things that I've talked about before when we talk about the hills have eyes. This is going to be a weird comparison, but but bear with me. <laughs> is the whole point of the hills have eyes is to convince you, the audience, that you believe these people are going to eat a child, and so they you start off like you would now. Obviously, the baby is going to be fine at the end of the movie, and then little by little, he convinces you. Wes Craven convinces you. No, they're going to eat that baby. And I think that that's the same secret of this movie is that it's Gregory Peck. And you're like, no way, Gregory Peck. He's going to figure out some other way around this. There's mm -hmm. no way. And then little by little, it wears him down to the end where you're like, well, he he's gonna. Um, and, I, <laughs> and I think that is that's there's a lot about this movie. And it's, it's funny because it's a movie that for me over the years, I loved it when I was a little kid because we're Catholic. All Catholic people love this movie. And then I didn't like it as I got older. I thought it was kind of bloated, and I thought it. And then, and then, and, and then, you know, revisiting it years later, I'm like, no, you know what? I, this is a good movie. I yeah. mean, it really. Of course, you love you some uh, White Claw. No, no, I don't love White Claw. I can't remember I her like name. Billy Whitelaw. That's it. Thank as, you, uh, Mrs. Baylock. <laughs> yeah. I, I still want my Mrs. Baylock origin story yeah. one of these days. I also love this because I believe this was 1976, so I was 12 mm -hmm. years old. This was one of my first in-theater R-rated horror movies. Wow. I don't know how I got somebody to take me, but uh, so I've always loved this one. There's so much great about it. The score, oh, I believe, yeah. won an Oscar. The score is fantastic. Um, yeah, Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, who oh, was yeah? also you know, yeah. very big at the time, and little Harvey Stevens. 
as uh, Damien. And then you've got that that iconic scene with uh, Jack Palance's daughter, yep. Holly, with yeah. Damien, it's all for you. Yeah. And speaking of rest in peace, David Warner. That's Warner. right. That's a great yeah. part here. Yeah. Um, so there's, man, there's a lot to love about this movie. Oh, and, and you know, David Warner, his exit out of the movie is probably the best kill in any oh, horror movie in the 70s. Oh, I mean, yeah. that sheet, that pane of glass yeah. decapitating him in slow motion. Yeah. Woo, that one so was good. good. After that had been, you know, forewarned mm-hmm. by yeah. saw the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's great. Well, I think Hope is, is, she's spot on with the casting of Gregory Peck. It reminds me very much, you know, I love that surprise casting that they were doing in the late 60s and early 70s. It reminds me very much of casting Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West yeah. mm-hmm. as the villain. Yeah. And, you know, the, the big stories, that's how it was sold to him. You know, when Sergio Leone wanted him is like, imagine this person gunning down these children, the camera pans around, and it's Henry Fonda. I yeah. know. Ooh, yeah. Especially sold. when, at the time, you were mainly seeing... All of these old-time stars resurrected in the big disaster mm-hmm. movies with right. with the yeah. big ensemble cast right. and everybody was in it. But this one, no, he's right at the heart oh, of yeah. it. Yeah, so it was it went against the grain a little bit that way as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, good choice, Richard Donner with the Omen for Daniel's number four. Okay, moving up to number three. Boy, this is a classic and one that we oh, we have spoken about this before, haven't we? I don't know. We're talking about famous directors. You can't get much uh, better than Ingmar Bergman as we move up to 1968 while vacationing on a remote German island with his younger pregnant wife. An artist has an emotional breakdown while confronting his repressed desires. Hour of the Wolf. <laughs> Bergman's Hour of the Wolf, the hour in which reality becomes a mockery of madness and masks hide behind faces. The hour of all final moments. Ingmar Bergman's Hour of the Wolf, a diary of truths and lies like truths. So, Across 70 films, Ingmar Bergman has flirted with horror on yeah. a number of occasions. I yeah. mean, in fact, I think there are a lot of his films that you could consider horror. Seven Seal, you could consider that. Virgin Spring, I don't know if you could consider that, but you could certainly consider Wes Craven's remake, which is The Last House on the Left. So clearly there's some horror in that yeah. story. But this is the one that I think stands out as being a genre film for him. And I don't think one that's remembered as as well as it ought to be, because it, it's my favorite. It's my favorite Bergman movie. It's so dreamlike. There's a, a mental collapse at the center of the film, which is Max Manzato, of course. Of you know? course, yeah. And, and his pregnant wife, Liv Ullman, of course. I remember the first time I saw it, what stuck out to me more than anything else was she's pregnant. And there's at one point she says she just wishes he would kiss her once. And I was a little kid and I thought that was the saddest moment mm. in any movie I'd ever seen in my life. Mm. And she is such a tragic but resilient character and really just an enigma, her character is, which is funny because she's the one constant. She's the one really not ethereal kind of figure in the mm-hmm. whole movie. I love everything about this movie. Obviously, it looks glorious. It does. Right? The light, the shadow, clearly, the because it's Bergman. I love the the way his madness takes form. I love the sort of, the way it touches on vampire myths and just mm-hmm. creepy folklore and meshes them together so you don't know what to expect because it's not really following any specific rules. I, I love everything about this movie. Yeah, Bergman himself defined the actual hour of the wolf as the time between midnight and dawn when most people die, when sleep is deepest, when nightmares are most palatable, it is the hour when the sleepless are pursued by their sharpest anxieties, when ghosts and demons hold sway. It's also the hour when the most children are born. Wow. Huh. That, <laughs> that's a lot to tackle for a movie. <laughs> but you're right. Even when we, not too long ago we watched The Seventh Seal again. Yeah, yeah. And um, it just, I think watching that again reminded me how much I like this movie. Yeah. Uh, it, pro- it probably is one of my favorites, Bergman. I haven't seen them all because no. you're right, there's 70 of yeah. them. But it's really, really good. Yeah, it's been a very long time since I've seen this. I, I I think I saw it in college for the first time and haven't revisited it since. But you know, thinking back on on that viewing, uh, what really stuck with me uh, for the movie is that emotional distance between the the characters and how and like Hope said, how sad that really is. Mm-hmm. Like there's just such a huge chasm uh, between the two from the from the start. And as his descent begins, it just gets wider and wider and wider. And, you know, you can, there are so many metaphors in, in this film, um, you know, outside of a horror film. But, you know, that's, that's really what sticks with me in that is just that emotional collapse between the two of them. And Daniel, I think you just watched this for the first time? Yes, last night. <laughs> What'd you think? 
I loved it. Yeah. Um, you know, we were just talking about Stephen King, and this almost feels like a proto Stephen King story. I mean, you have an artist who is troubled by his own demons who will eventually consume him, and you know, the family member who wants to help as best she can, but there's just really nothing that she can do to, you know, stop the downfall from occurring. And then, of course, the the heartbreak that that leaves her with. And it was just, it's it's just a beautiful film. And, you know, I knew I'd love Max von Sydow in it when I sat down to watch it, but uh, Liv Ullman really made a mark on me when I was uh, sitting down with it last night at just a, a haunting performance. <laughs> you know, you, you just want to scream at her to just leave. You know, <laughs> he's, he's not worth it. Just leave. Yeah. <laughs> but, but she can't. And, you know, it's just a surreal waking nightmare, not in the sense of, you know, phantasmagoria so much, but just a really depressing and emotionally taxing situation. Yeah, you know, I just loved every minute of it. I'll definitely be watching it again soon. Ah. I'm so glad. For me, the other, the, in, in, in revisiting it, like, years later, after the first time I saw it, it was always the gun, when they set that gun down. I remember, oh. and then, and then, so the first time, I maybe not paid much attention to that, but after you know what happens with the gun, that always still does. It just makes my stomach clench, like, oh. God, the gun. Yeah. Looks like this was also number three for um, Brandon, right? So... I just have down that uh, Daniel has one to add. No, my my actual number three is I believe your number two. That's oh, why. That's because yeah. there was overlap. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're right. That's right. why right. we're right. Yeah. The notes so, were confusing me. But Dan, right. Daniel had another one to add here at number three. Yes. Uh, Nicholas Rogues, Don't Look Now. Speaking of waking nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, oh gosh, it's just a stylish and haunting look at grief, mm-hmm. um, what that can do to you, how it can change your perception of reality and perhaps even lead to your own demise. I mean, it's just, you know, Rogue kind of flirted with horror again after this. Uh, You know, he did the children's movie, The Witches, and then he did a a, sort of a supernatural drama in the 90s that I haven't seen called Cold Heaven, but he never really came at horror as hard as, again, as hard as he does here. And it's, frankly, it's, it's almost like a less sleazy Giallo film. Yes, yes. I think that's how yeah. we always categorize it yeah. as well. I, I could definitely see that. And, and I think as, as great as the two lead performances are, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, you mentioned the word stylish, and that makes me think of where it's of a director's a director's film because it's so stylish. Yeah, it's poetic, really, and yeah. that's what that's what the film feels to me is like is like poetry. And one of the other reasons that I like it so much, it, and we did a whole podcast once on grief mm-hmm. as uh, uh, you know the motivating um, underlying vehicle for horror. And um, when I looked at this uh, in that whole list, what I loved about it is that. It's a man's grief at losing a child that is the underlying tension in in this movie, and that's almost unheard of, I'm telling you, because we Mm -hmm. researched it for a podcast. It's always the mother's grief, and I love that. I I mean, it's not as if Julie Christie's character is not full of grief, but the point-of-view character and the one who's just losing his shit over this is the father, which um, makes this an interesting perspective. And, of course, it's remembered so often for that twist at the end. Yeah. but That's not my favorite part. Right. Exactly. I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah, it's in, in just talking again about coming to couples that are slowly coming apart and disintegrating. Right. That's something in these types of movies that always, again, sticks with me is because it is. It's it's so real. It's it's emotionally real. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter, like, what other, what other supernatural aspects might be happening in the movie or whatever twist in the end is there at the end. But going forward throughout that forward momentum throughout the film is this disintegration between this couple and the horror that that's causing. I think you're right. It's the emotional honesty that makes the whole supernatural element work. Yep. And that's a good choice for Daniel's number three. Don't look now. Moving up to number two. This is actually Daniel's number one. So we're almost of like minds here. Uh, This is the classic. Talked about it many times. A family heads to an isolated hotel for the winter. You know it. Stanley Kubrick's 1980 classic, The Shining. Mom? Do you really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter? Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is uh, the tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here? I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. Here's Johnny! (laughs) 
What you said. We have talked about this hundreds of times. As hey, has Daniel, everyone. Hey, Daniel, tell us why it made your list. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, I, have, I, I love the book. The film is completely different from the book, but it's just a masterpiece in its own right because it's just an extreme exercise in style. You know, there's a lot of talk sometimes about other films that Kubrick enjoyed beyond his own. You know, I believe he was a big fan of both Smokey and the Bandit and Cannonball Run, which is kind of of funny to think about him sitting down and watching those. But you never really hear much about him or any love or affinity he had for the horror genre. So it's hard to know exactly what films, you know, made a mark on him and fueled his vision here. You know, there's some instances here and there where you can pick apart some things, but it's just an exercise in terror from start to finish. I know Stephen King's biggest nitpick with the film is that, you know, it's Jack Nicholson. He's crazy from frame one. I mean, how could he not be? He's Jack. Right. But that doesn't really matter because, it's just ratcheting up the tension as it goes. His craziness is ratcheting up. And, you know, contrary to what King said, there is a lot of nuance in Nicholson's performance. He's still playing with the fact that deep down, Jack Torrance, no, he doesn't want to kill his family, but he's being compelled to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, God, I don't, I don't even know how to put into words. Uh, the first time I saw this film, I had to stay up for a a medical test, had to stay up all night long and then go to sleep in a lab. And this is one of the movies that my father showed me to keep me awake. And boy, did it do the trick. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's so many great, for lack of a better word, Kubrickian, you know, touches all over this film, the shots. And I do admit to occasionally going down the rabbit hole of shining fan theories, (laughs) which I think are very amusing. And it always takes me back to quotes that I've read from Kubrick himself where he just says, it's a silly ghost story. Uh, you know, some of these <laughs> fan theories are just so outlandish. They're, they're, they're funny. And yeah, it's a ghost story, people. And it's a good one. It is. And, and I think and I think that Nicholson is perfectly cast because one of the things I think that the film gets right is that it does toss aside so many King-isms, including mm-hmm. that wholesome, hokey, sentimental good guy who gets corrupted kind of storyline because I just think that that's so predictable and trite. And uh, I love that you start off with a guy who's just not right. I mean, look at his face. You know, he's just not right. And, and then, you know, the they and then he's looking at a, if you watch the fan, fan theories and you zoom in, he's looking at a playgirl in the, not even a playboy. Like, what's going on with this guy? Um, I love that. And also I know that, right, of course, she got a, a Razzie for her performance Shelley that Shelly Duvall, yeah. and she's also perfect. She's, she's perfect. Because oh, yeah. who doesn't want to kill her? All of us do. <laughs> yeah. Everybody does. And yeah. I and love you, that And about if you it. read some of the quotes about that casting, yeah, that was exactly what Kubrick was going for. Yeah, exactly. and he made her miserable, which yeah. is unfortunate. Like, I'm, I'm right. sorry that, that the, the and also Scatman Crothers had a terrible time. I'm sorry that, that the, the actors had such a, I, Nicholson seemed to thrive. But I mean, I'm sorry <laughs> that, that on the set was not a good time for anybody. And it's, because I, he is known for countless takes. But for me, the the end result is next yeah. to perfection. It's a, there's so, so many classic moments that have become iconic for good reason. Yeah, what I what I really love about The Shining is you can take it and, like, say, uh, a movie we talked about earlier, Misery, and, and put them against one, one another, and they're completely different mm-hmm. exercises. I mean, you know, Misery for could be a stage play, and it has been a stage play before, right. whereas, you know, Kubrick's version of The Shining is something that could have only been done as a as a movie, as a, as a film. Uh, yeah, the, the visuals in it are incredible. And you have so many iconic ones, whether it's Nicholson carrying the axe, you know, busting through the door, the here's Johnny, the hedge maze, uh, the blood coming out of the out of the elevator. I mean, it's all there. And it's just this great mood piece mm-hmm. that doesn't really need. I, I don't think that it needs to dig incredibly deep into the characters to work. That's not what he was going for. And it didn't need that. No, you're right. It is one of the most cinematic films you're going to find in horror for sure. Yeah. And just sums up. You can take a look at so many different shots and and that just sums up a Kubrick type of film and 
yes, also the same way with 2001 and so many of his others. But, you know, the wide pullback, you know, yeah. how well yeah. it worked for oh the confines God. of the hotel. Oh, yeah. Right. When to he's, create that, yeah. that right. you know, uh, claustrophobia, even in the outdoors. Yeah. The claustrophobia yeah. because yeah. of the weather. And mm-hmm. the like when they're in the, the bathroom and that power shift change that we always oh, talk about. Oh, yeah. No, you are the caretaker. Yeah, God, I love that scene. Gonna, yeah, you know, it starts pulled back and just the... The, the antiseptic nature of a bathroom that's clean like that, and then it just gets so, such more intimate and intimate as the power shifts. Love it. Um, Stanley Kubrick. That's our number two, and Daniel's number one. So Brandon has a different number two here, but another great one. Yeah, I do. My number two is uh, William Friedkin and The Exorcist. One of my all-time favorite yeah. horror movies. I, that's when people have to pin me down. I, I, I Normally it's hard, but I almost just go to this one because it's just great. For me, if you look at... You know, back to back, the French Connection and The Exorcist, the the change in style and how perfectly those styles suit the content. Mm -hmm. The way is like you were talking about, like Kubrick coming in on something. The whole first act of this movie are these massive wide shots. And then the next part of it is, you know, medium close-ups. And then the longer we're in that house, the tighter the frame yeah. gets, mm-hmm. the closer you are to evil, the more then you feel trapped. Then you're finally just in the bedroom. Yeah. yeah. It's, Only in it's, the bedroom. Yeah. yeah. The the direction, you know, I mean, everything about it, the, the writing is brilliant. And the special effects, of course, were ahead of their time. And the performances were exquisite. But uh, I love the use of camera in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about the movie is, of course, the visuals, you know, are all there. But the the way in which Friedkin allows you to get to know the family, get to know Chris, get to get to know Reagan, even, you know, Father Marin uh, and Father Karras. But as the movie gets tighter and as things get more claustrophobic and more horrific, you're almost feeling more horror at what these people are going through yeah. right. than, than what you're seeing on yeah. the screen. Because it, it does, it feels, again, going back to family, it feels like the real, the most horrific type of disintegration of a family that could that could actually happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's it's a slow burn. I mean mm-hmm. it takes a while just yeah. for that for that reason. And even the cop too, Kinderman, you get to know him yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, being a film fan and so he winds up he's a fan of her work and everything. It takes a while, but it pays off with that emotional investment for sure. Daniel. Yeah. Oh, it's the exorcist is you know, this this is another instance where uh, you know I cheated. I didn't have to put the Exorcist on my list because it was on Brandon's list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it's an absolute classic. Um, and you know, hope you're right about the contrast between the French Connection and the Exorcist. And I'd even go so far as to add Sorcerer right after. Oh it. Right. yeah, All yeah. Of them right. Yeah, Boy, yeah that, that was a style different. that suited the content unbelievably yeah, well. Yeah, I love Sorcerer. Friedkin was just firing on all cylinders right then and just nailed, completely nailed three different genres, particularly horror, uh, you know, in a way that he never has since. He's dabbled in the genre a bit since then, never to as great effect as he did here. And um, I, he just, uh, I, I think a lot of the reason that The Exorcist works where you know, imitators since have failed is that it treats, you know, whatever anyone's personal beliefs might be, it treats the the Christian and satanic aspects of the movie just as mythology, just like you would if you were doing a Greek mythology film or a Roman one or anything else. And he just looks at it matter-of-factly and lays it out and focuses on the characters instead, and that in turn informs you know, the supernatural stuff that's going on on screen, and it just makes it more impactful as it goes along. And I would recommend, if you haven't seen it, I think it was about four years ago, the documentary called Friedkin Uncut. I just was basically just a big conversation with him about this movie and others. Very good. Very good. Also, Killer Joe. Just watch Killer oh, Joe. Killer yes. Joe. Yes. Bug. Bug, Killer yeah. Joe and Bug. Because yeah, Freakin' definitely had, uh, he had a big old slump period. Like a really, <laughs> what was the bat, the Guardian about the killer the trees? Tree? Yeah, oh my yeah. God, that yeah. was so yeah. terrible. However, came back strong with Bug and then Killer Joe, which was one of my absolute favorite movies the yep. year came out. Loved them both. Um, the Exorcist is Brandon's number number two. Mm-hmm. All right, so we'll go up to number one. And this is also Brandon's number one and Daniel's number two. So I think we all like this. And this is one we've also talked about many, many times. A young FBI cadet must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer, a madman who skins his victims. Jonathan Demme's 1991, The Silence of the Lambs. Just do your job, but never forget what he is. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're going to catch him. Do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. 
You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing and arms. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? It was nicely coincidental. This was just on TV, what, two nights ago? Yeah. And we, of course, clicked it and put the that... put the remote down, and we were watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've talked about this one thousands of times, uh, on air, off air, in the car, everywhere, at Subway. It doesn't matter. So why don't we start with, Brandon, this was your number one. Tell us why that is. I think in many reasons why, especially when compared with The Exorcist, it's because Demi approaches this as if it's almost a drama with horrific elements. It's like, we're going to play this real. What if this was actually happening? And this is how it would go down. So everything doesn't feel, it ne- nothing ever feels exploitative or gratuitous, even though, you know, maybe as time has gone on, some things with Jane Gum might not have aged as well. But uh, Demi just goes for it as real as possible. And the performances are just, <laughs> I mean, out of this world. You know, Ted Levine, you know, Anthony Hopkins, all of them, it's fantastic. It's it's a perfect movie. I've read the books, um, for better or worse, when it comes to some of the later ones. But uh, Signs of the Lambs was always my second favorite of the bunch because, as a book, it felt to me a little too derivative of Red Dragon. But the film just improves on it on every level. The casting is perfect. The direction is perfect. The script is perfect. There is absolutely, you know, like Brandon said, obviously, you know, in hindsight, decades later. There are some problematic elements in regards to, you know, the entire Buffalo Bill things. But Ted Levine is so good that you often don't think about that while you're watching it. That's more something that pops into your mind after you've sat down with it again and you're examining it. But, yeah, it's it's just a perfect horror movie from top to bottom, just as classy as can be. And I don't really know what else I could say about it other than that. I think one of the things that jumped out to me in watching it just two nights ago was how many newer films you can see that just I don't want to say rip it off right. but you know when you see a sleight of hand now oh, in a movie yeah. Yeah. this movie has it really starts early on it with does. the the this, the uh, flashback of her going up to see her uh, father's uh, casket her mm-hmm. fa- there's a sleight of hand there and then of course there's the classic one where they're knocking on James Gum's door yeah. that's been repeated by many other films and filmmakers and not as well and then, of course, the the one too when Lecter has managed to escape. What a that's not really a jump scare per se, but in the ambulance when he takes that face off, come on, that is like a jump scare when it, you realize what is happening. Like, holy shit! Yeah, that's a it's a perfect moment because you should have known, given yeah. his predilections, yes. that he's going to think to do that, but you didn't know. Oh. And uh, yeah, it's brilliant. And I think uh, Brandon, one of the things that you said early on, I think is exactly right. Jonathan Demi approaches this so not, there's nothing gratuitous about it. The color palette mm-hmm. is very muted. The, the music is just beautiful. It's not, there's none like screechy sort of prepare you for something that's going to be scary. Um, and, you know, actually, Seven, I think, uh, it takes a lot of inspiration from this movie mm-hmm. where it's a mm-hmm. horror film yeah. Yeah. about horrific things, but it's not filmed as if it's a genre movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think one of the other things that uh, that made this movie so effective is the way that you mirror this um, cadet who's all good and positive, but obviously there's something about her that Demi sees as being the same as Hannibal Lecter. They're always, when they're shot in a mirror. Oh, the way they're shot. You know, so that they're always reflecting each other, even though they're not characters you would think are similar, but he sees something similar in them, which Mm -hmm. is, since she's our vehicle in the film, and he eats people, and Mm -hmm. he's really scary, (laughs) that's um, unsettling, and almost subconsciously so. Yeah, well, especially that quid pro quo scene, where there's back and forth, they're both staring directly into the camera mm-hmm. or maybe one is no he is and hers is just a little off of camera right that was mm-hmm. it yeah she, he see, he stares right into the camera and hers is just a little bit off and then sometimes he he goes back and forth he pulls focus from mm-hmm. one to the other within the same frame is brilliant yeah well i think what what demi does really well is he makes the horrific seem almost mundane mm. you know throughout the, mm-hmm. the film and i remember when this movie came out i was pretty young i was like maybe nine mm-hmm. when it came out and i can remember you know already being into horror movies a little bit but that 
the reputation the movie had scared me. Yeah. You know, coming out. And I can remember like friends, you know, my some of my friends' moms seeing the movie and they were not horror people, but they had heard about this thing. They had to see it. And like it it changed their lives almost for the worst. Like the trauma <laughs> this yeah. movie gave so many people because it was it was like a it was a, cla- a classy horror film. Mm-hmm. I know there was a lot of things like this is a thriller, not a horror oh, yeah. film. No, it's a horror uh, film. Exactly. Right, <laughs> that's, that's such a cop out. Yeah, when it cleaned it up at the Oscars, then people had to think of a reason. Well, no, it's it's not. A, it's, it's a thriller. Yeah. Uh, but which is. Silly, because you've pointed out many times, no, he eats people. Yeah, it's, uh-huh. it's a movie about a guy who eats human flesh, helping somebody track down a guy who wears other people's flesh. No, this is a horror movie. Yeah, oh, and speaking of, we have to mention another rest in peace. We just found out this week in that iconic scene with Buffalo Bill, the song, as many people know that's playing, is, is um, Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus, and the main musician behind Q Lazarus just passed away. Yeah. yeah. Diane Lucky. That's really unfortunate because she yeah. was a young woman, like 56. Yeah, in her 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's too bad because that music, that song perfect. just so works perfect. perfectly for that scene. But and, and I agree with you, Brandon. I think if memory serves, Silence of the Lambs was probably the most had the biggest reputation since The Exorcist mm-hmm. for people, oh, yes. like, like the way you mentioned, having oh, I have to see it because it's such a landmark and people are just freaking out because right. they saw it. I remember that as a kid, mm-hmm. hearing those stories about people going to see The Exorcist. And Jaws. Right, right. And it's and just the intensity of the movie it just makes it all more surprising. I think when you look back at The Silence of the Lambs now, no matter how many times you've seen it, you're almost like, wow, this was an Oscar-winning movie. Yeah. You just mm-hmm. never, never figured the Academy to go for yeah. something that intense, which just speaks to how well-made the whole thing is. Yeah, obviously the studio didn't expect that either because it came out the tail end of August, which is the dead zone. Mm-hmm. Nobody expected anything to happen, and man, and, and, and everybody loved it, right? Audiences loved it. And we've done, I've talked about this um, in, in other films too. One of the things I think works really well about the movie is the way you've got the two villains, and they're the polar opposites. One is just just this sloppy mess of rage and the other is so precise and contained and i i love that in a movie because it gives you as the audience the opportunity to go which is scarier i don't know which of these people i'm more afraid of and it's sort of like a (laughs) werewolf vampire kind of a Mm -hmm. situation where you've got the two completely different maybe equally terrifying versions it messes with your your i guess moral compass in that Mm -hmm. somehow in helping to catch buffalo bill you're almost like stopping yourself from viewing Lecter as some sort of good guy yeah. because yeah. he's helping here. Right. And they're like, no, that's not, yeah, it's it just, yeah, it messes with you. Love you, suit. Love you, suit, <laughs> mom. Oh, so great. Uh, Silence of the Lambs. Number one for uh, on our list in Brandon's and number two for Daniel's uh, on Daniel's list. So a lot of love. For that, so man, this has been fun, guys. Yeah. Thank you so much. Good, good content, as we know you would bring it, and you did. And we're looking forward to your podcast. Hopefully, coming soon, right? Fingers crossed. Give me that title again. Oh, yeah. Exploitation on the Double. All right, with Brandon nice. Thomas and Daniel Baldwin. We've got, as we mentioned, we've got a big one coming up in October. As uh, well, in September first, we start with the Black Coat's Daughter for Fright Club Live, and then in October, we're going to have the uh, premiere mm-hmm. of Piggy. Yep, brand new, brutal. From what we hear. Yeah. Spanish horror film. And also something else big is going on in October. What could that be? It, yes. We have a movie we may have mentioned to you. It's called Obstacle Corpse. It is going to make its local premiere during Nightmares Film Festival. So get your passes now. It's the weekend of October the 20th. It's like 20th, 21st, 22nd, 20th. Right, 23rd, right in there, yeah. 23rd. Yeah, Thursday through Sunday. And, uh, th- you know, there's a million reasons to spend all of your days at the Nightmares Film Festival because they always have the greatest movies uh, and shorts. I love their shorts programs every year, and we are absolutely thrilled. We're not in competition, so we're not going to win anything because right. uh, George and I are both judges, and then Jason Tostevin, who is uh, the programmer and co-founder, he is our producer. He's also in the movie, as is George. <laughs> but the important thing is they're going to let us show our movie there, and so we hope you guys will all come out and watch it. No, and we should say, and I know we've said this before, even if our movie wasn't involved, this is a fantastic film festival. I know Brandon and Daniel both will back us up on that. Of course. Best oh, film, yeah. best, best genre film festival out there, bar none. And we would love to see you look it up, Gateway Film Center, Nightmares Film Festival, the weekend of October 20th through 23rd. Love to see you there, guys. Thanks so much. Uh, keep us updated on where we can get a hold of you, um, Brandon, on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Twitter, it's the only one I can remember right now, is at Brandon Cliff. That's where th- <laughs> that's where my regurgitation of movie nonsense happens the most. And then you're on something something, Brandon, right, on Instagram. Oh, yeah, that's Instagram. I'm glad you remembered it because I did not. <laughs>
And Daniel, you also, you're, of course, the Schlocketeer. Yes, I'm on uh, Twitter as at the Schlocketeer, and then on Facebook just as Daniel Baldwin. Um, my, you, you can find me. I always have some sort of horror profile picture. That, that'll be an easy way to track me down. If yeah, those are good. There. I like those. Yeah, and of course, uh, and Daniel joins us every week on our other podcast, The Screening Room. And we look forward to your guys' podcast coming soon. So a lot, uh, a lot to look forward to. And thank you so much for this great conversation. This has been a good one. We yeah. knew it would be. Keep in touch if you can. If you've got some in mind that we missed, let us know. We'll be glad to take the mea culpa as we did for not remembering uh, Suspiria. Uh, we love yes. to say, oh, yeah, how could we forget that? So maybe yeah. there was something. Let us know. You can find us, of course, easily on Twitter. That's at Fright Club Pod. And on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website is madwolf.com. How else can they get us on Facebook, George? They <laughs> they can find our Fright Club <laughs> Podcast Facebook group. That's right. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, you can just send a request to join that, and you will be approved post-haste and join the fun. We do have some fun stuff in there, and also we keep up to date on uh, horror movies coming and going, so it's always a good time in there. So many ways to keep in touch, and we hope to hear from you. Until then, uh, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Guys, can you do it together in stereo? Stay, Stay frightful, frightful, my friends. My friends.